This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Jason Kelly. We're here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Bloomberg Business Week reporters and editors. Not to mention our 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. This is one of my favorite stories. And you've been talking about it all day. day. I know. Well, just because, you know, names make news. We learned that yes. a long time ago here at Bloomberg. It's among X, our most read, too. Ex-BlackRock Managers Fund said to get Blackstone money. BlackRock, Blackstone, it's one of the great, you know, misnomers of our time in terms of people like, do you mean BlackRock or Blackstone? Yeah. Well, in this case, we mean both. Uh, <laughs> Katja Porsikansky is here with us, investing reporter, following all things hedge fund uh, and beyond in our investing team. KP, great to have you with us. Thanks for having me. Uh, So what do we make of this? Because this is a big slug of money that this manager is getting. And another name that makes news, this manager is named Michael Phelps, but he's not the swimmer. Not that one. (laughs) He used to run credit at BlackRock. Uh, He oversaw $35 billion at BlackRock, and now he's getting a seed from Blackstone um, for his new hedge fund, which is going to be a credit-focused hedge fund out of Europe. He's getting $200 million um, from uh, Blackstone. From Blackstone alone. From Blackstone alone. And combined with money from him and with um, with some other partners, they'll have about $250 million at least when they launch later this year. And they're targeting uh, about $1.5 billion. So... You know. Is that considered a lot of money? Give me, now, give me some perspective. Yeah. I thought they always kind of try to hit the billion mark or something. They do, but you know this environment, it's, it's, a, tough uh, one, right? it's a tough one. We wrote a story at the end of last year that was about one billion being the loneliest right. number because there are very few large launches slated for this year. Um, a lot of uh, folks are being kind of almost discouraged from even trying in this environment uh, and instead encouraged to go onto a platform like a Citadel or a Millennium where they can just have all their overhead covered and, and they they could just focus on managing money. And from Blackstone, $200 million, we, we actually interviewed John McCormick at the end of last year who, who runs the Blackstone's unit um, that, that helps seed uh, hedge funds. And he had said they're going to be doing fewer seeds this year, um, but focused on l- larger launches that have an institutional track record. And $200 million is the upper bound of what they're planning on giving. So, so, so it's fair to, to say that Phelps is walking away with a, the bigger check. Um, right. Right. that they're going to be handing out. So take us inside, because you talk to these guys every day, take us inside sort of the hedge fund zeitgeist now that we're, you know, a month He's become change. Tom Keen all of a sudden, because <laughs> yeah. he's using zeitgeist a lot. But go ahead. Zeitgeist. I love that um, You know, a month and a half into 2019, as you, as you alluded to, 2018, not the greatest of years for uh, hedge funds. I think six out of ten uh, lost money. And yet there are some, some standouts. So, so what do we make of it out there? So uh, especially with credit, Right, which um, uh, Michael Phelps' uh, hedge fund tre- Tresidor Investment Management will be focused Where do on. Where they get these names? Tre- by I the way. never oh know. Lord. There's a there's an online Just call it Acme hedge fund generator. Hedge fund, <laughs> yeah. Or Much Michael not, Phelps, he'd get some money Phelps. just for that. Exactly. Yeah. So I mean, you would imagine that makes sense. He's going to be credit oriented. Um, a lot of money went into credit hedge funds uh, last year that were that were raising money. We have the they, um, credit hedge funds raised a net three point four billion dollars last year, while the industry as a whole lost $34 billion in, in, from credit from client redemptions. So credit is is going to be hot, and we saw that, right? A lot of people have been calling for a big blow up or right. shake out in credit markets, so it makes sense that you're probably going to want to be allocated to a credit hedge fund, but not 
all hedge funds were created equal and um, a lot of other strategies are struggling. So we will continue to see, we're continuing to monitor how different hedge funds are going to be raising and or luring capital this year. But his track record, a good one. Phelps, um, or what? I don't. I, I haven't seen it, but okay. you would. But we would imagine that it is so, given that Blackstone has specifically said they're going to be focusing on, on 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 managers with a big institutional background, and it makes sense, right? He managed thirty five billion for BlackRock. This right. isn't a no name guy, yeah. right? Right, and that's what they're looking for, and that's what you're seeing more and more of people with pedigree being sought after, not just a random guy. Well, I have to say, this takes me right back to the last time we talked to you. We talked to you about Fur Tree mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. the fact that the star manager still holds some sway in in the hedge fund world. I mean, that was a case where, you know, Fur Tree loses its, its big guy. He's like, I'm hanging it up here in Florida and exactly. things start to go downhill. Exactly, exactly. They want, uh, investors in hedge funds want reputable people who have a long track record and a lot to lose and and that's who they're going to be willing to put their money behind well and you've got to i mean when blackstone is coming out and saying okay here's uh black rock rather no blackstone no, Black Blackstone Rock. is the oh, one investing no. in the former oh, BlackRock manager. But this is <laughs> Blackstone. See, this is what happens. But it's like getting kind of you know the financial community seal of approval, right? To have a firm like this allocate that much money, precisely. Yeah. Well, and I'm always, I've always been fascinated by this business at Blackstone too, because this was a business that started out in the late '90s, early 2000s. It was paltry. I mean, it was right. basically like sort of investing the other partner's money. Tom Hill, who I think, keep me honest here, Katya, Tom Hill essentially gave this business over to, to McCormick. Yep. McCormick succeeded Tom Hill. I mean, Tom Hill built this into the biggest business on the street, this sort of fund of hedge funds Amazing. business that, you know, accounts for a big chunk of Blackstone's <laughs> assets under management now. Here's what McCormick actually said about why they're targeting these specific types of managers. He said, we've always made relatively large seed investments because we want managers to have enough day one capital so they can focus solely on generating great performance out of the gate as opposed to being distracted by the need to raise additional capital to support the business. And that's what's really important. In order, We're seeing more and more, in order for these managers to get off the ground, they need a big seed yeah. to just stabilize them. It's kind of a catch-22. And go do their job. right? right? It, unless you get that big seed, you're not going to get other money. And you're not going to get other money unless you have a seat, right? Yeah, <laughs> it's right. like getting a first job. <laughs> right. <laughs> right, exactly. Well, and you need to, to Carol's point, like getting that seal of approval from a Blackstone, especially uh, as you rightly point out, at a time when they're backing fewer managers, yeah. but they're putting a nice slug of money in. Can I just tell you, this is going to be on the Bloomberg News quiz this week, right? And oh, you're yeah, see if absolutely. you don't screw up the Blackstone versus mm. BlackRock. Mm-hmm. Is this you just down. teeing up for you and I to take the <laughs> quiz on air together? Uh, here's I a newsflash to all Jason. our listeners uh, out there. Carol Masser, very competitive. <laughs> Especially when it comes to the Bloomberg News oh, Weekly quiz. Do you goodness. take it, Kathy? I do take it. It's great, right? I do, and I don't understand people who are anonymous on it. I know. Yeah, <laughs> you I take that Sometimes I want to be anonymous when Carol Masser kicks my butt. But that's a whole I was thing. distracting. I, I yeah, was. I did. He was really like underhanded. All right, Katya Porzkanski, thank you so much. Check her out on Twitter, investing reporter at Bloomberg News. Get a rhythm. When you get the blues, come on, get a rhythm. Looking for a rhythm or a trend line in this market to figure out kind of what comes next. 
Uh, let's get a market check with Emily Rowland, head of capital markets research over at John Hancock Investments, based in Boston, in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio here in New York on this Monday. Uh, nice to have you here. Thanks for having me. What do you make of the market environment? Yeah, it's definitely been a, a kind of a quiet day or so, even last week. I think, you know, you had this big rebound off of the Christmas Eve lows, and we earned up half or more of the the declines back and now investors are sort of reassessing i think they're sort of taking a deep breath looking at the data we're about two-thirds of the way through earnings season here it's coming along pretty nicely about 16 percent earnings growth right around what was expected right. but for us what we're looking at going forward in terms of earnings revisions is probably more important and what is that how worried should we be about what happens going forward <laughs> we talked about this a little bit with dave right yeah. earlier well, earnings uh, certainly aren't going higher, right? So we're looking at an environment with which peak earnings growth uh, is likely behind us. That's no big secret for markets, right? 20-plus percent earnings growth is certainly going to be hard to achieve this year. But what concerns us a little bit is the direction in which revisions are going. So if you looked at 2019 as a whole, uh, a few months ago, 10% earnings growth was expected by analysts. Now that's down to about 5.1% as of this morning. First qu- quarter, of course, now we're looking at negative earnings earnings revisions or negative earnings growth. And if you look at that 5.1%, it's actually really backloaded into the end of 2019, right? And in our view, that actually assumes that you're going to need to see economic growth reaccelerate in order to achieve that at the end of the year. And that's going to be you know, tough to do. Emily, how often though, in terms of those earnings expectations, those analyst reductions and earnings estimates, how often are they correct? How often do they kind of tend to be more negative or more positive? Yes. Certainly. I mean, analysts are, are constantly lowering expectations in order for that, you know, that hurdle to be lower to to beat. Um, so I think we'll, we're seeing a little bit of that as well. But again, the direction is not our friend in, in this type mm-hmm. of environment. We don't like seeing things moving lower. And we we're OK, though, with with, you know, five percent earnings growth. That's OK. But we're watching really closely next 12 month earnings estimates in order to determine when we might want to get more defensive within the portfolio. And I do wonder if a healthier discussion. Um, is to have that we will get a recession. That's just the way (laughs) economic and market cycles work. So at this point, is it what kind of recession? If we get a recession or when we get a recession, what kind of recession will it be? Sure. So I assume you're talking about an economic recession, Correct. not an earnings recession. And, you know, I think in Although the fourth... Although they go... Do they necessarily go hand They in can. Hand? Yeah. And I think in the fourth quarter, what a lot of investors were pricing in was a recession on our doorstep, right? And what's happened with this rally is investors have woken up to the idea that a recession's probably a, l- a little bit of a ways out. One of our favorite ways of evaluating when we might get a recession is by using the conference board leading economic Mm -hmm. indicators. It's been an accurate predictor of the last seven recessions in the U.S., and it's still very much in positive territory. The last click was about 5% year-over-year growth. The thing to recognize, though, is that that's down from about a peak of 7% back in September. So we're watching the trend line moving down. It's caused us to kind of take a little bit of risk off the table, but would actually have to be negative in order for us to really want to become more defensively oriented. So that's one input. What are the other inputs that you're getting from your team? Because presumably 
part of your job is to synthesize all of this stuff that's sort of coming at you and figuring out what's the most important. What else are you thinking of? Give us the secret sauce. Here. Yeah, so uh, we're very fortunate at John Hancock because we do have a multi-manager approach to investing. So I'm able to draw on all of the different portfolio managers that manage money for us, all the economists that we talk to every day. And if you think about kind of the macro environment, you know, the two things that have really driven markets in our view over the past month or so are, are a more dovish Fed, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And certainly some idea that we might get a resolution on tariffs tariffs and trade, right? So those two key macro inputs are really leaving us in a bit of a haze right now until we get more clarity on that. So we're listening closely to the language out of the Fed, and we're watching closely, particularly this week, as more talks resume around China trade and tariffs. Are you at all nervous that the Fed hasn't gone high enough in terms of rates so that when it needs to start cutting rates, it has enough of play there, or if you will? Yeah, I mean, I think it's, a, it's a yeah, it's absolutely important for the Fed to have some dry powder when we do need yeah. it. Um, they're certainly a lot further along than central banks are overseas. Um, you know, the ECB, the Bank of Japan, they're going to be in an awfully difficult position yeah. when we do have a global recession. So the Fed is in a better position than that. But markets are pricing in rate cuts right now. Uh, there is a chance that the Fed could move ahead with one or maybe even two rate hikes this year. Rate hikes, yeah. There right. you go. Emily, it, thank you so much. Emily Roland is head of capital markets research at John Hancock Investments up in Boston, joining us here in our Bloomberg Interactive Brokers studio. So among our most read stories on the Bloomberg, I promise you we had a bunch of them today, is a Bloomberg opinion piece about how President Trump has China exactly where he needs it. The hedge fund Heyman Capital's Kyle Bass wrote it. He joins us to explain his thinking from our Bloomberg 960 studio in San Francisco. Kyle, great to have you here uh, with Jason and myself. Just lay out your premise here. Uh, Hi, Carol. You know, my premise is, uh, you know, when President Xi uh, basically made the comment that financial security is national security back in early 2016, uh, China started implementing a, a basically a, a credit contraction, trying to slow down the reckless credit growth that China engaged in in, in the last decade. And uh, you saw, you've seen a contraction in their fiscal spending by almost six percent of GDP. So before Trump ever uttered the word tariff, uh, you'd already seen China dramatically slow down. So I think that you know separating this idea that that trade is the end all be all versus uh, resetting our global relationship with China, uh, it, it, those are the two those are the two ideas I think that are at play today. And this idea of whether or not we get a trade deal done by March first, I think, uh, pales in comparison to effectively resetting our relationship with China and and and, and basically turning off being a pacifist and being more of an activist and not allowing China to to run all over us like they have for the last couple of decades. Well, because Kyle, one of the interesting things that you point out, which I feel like gets lost in the broader debate, is this is largely a debt story uh, in many ways. And the magnitude of it and the global implications of what China has done just vis-a-vis its own approach to debt is really important and, and I think misunderstood candidly. It's, it's truly remarkable. When you look back to our financial crisis, our banking system had about 100% of banking assets to our GDP on balance sheet. And off balance sheet, if you include Fannie and Freddie and the non-banks, we were about 1.75. China today is three and a half times levered to its GDP and its banks. 
Uh, and that is that is such a large number for an economy that is I don't know what you want to call uh, China. Is it a developed economy or is it a developing economy? Either way, uh, they've amassed $48 trillion worth of, of debt and credit in their system. You just think about that. Their economy is only $13 trillion. And that's, of course, if you dollarize it. Um, it's, it's hard for people to understand. If, you're, if you think back to what happened to Iceland, Ireland, uh, uh, Iceland, Ireland, and Greece, you know, they had nine to ten times their GDP in their banks. So as soon as their banks had their first losses, it broke the country because the country had to, had to get behind depositors. Uh, China's in uh, uh, almost as bad of a situation, but in, in, let's just say, in nominal terms, no, one, no country in the world's history has ever had $48 trillion worth of credit in their banking system. So what's interesting is, I don't know whether I could go as far as to say China's on its knees, but it's certainly in a much more vulnerable position than it's ever been. Um, you can certainly go out on a limb on that. And so, Kyle, here we've got these negotiations. It's funny because we have these conversations in the newsroom that we've got an administration that's saying buy more soybeans and things like that. And we're like, well, wait a minute. Is that really the problem that we have with China? And your point is we've got to go to the industrial espionage and espionage and, and kind of attack those issues, those are more important longer term in terms of our relationship with China. That's right. I think I think what's lost on on all it's look macroeconomics is is a difficult concept. I think for for the average person to, to grasp. And when you think about being a global hegemonic uh, currency like the dollar is, we have to run trade deficits uh, to supply the world with dollars. If the world is going to use 70% of transactions are going to settle in dollars. Right. The world has to have a lot of dollars. So we need to run some sort of trade deficit with the rest of the world if we're going to maintain our hegemonic position. And I think people think linearly about that when you think about if they steal $300 billion a year of intellectual property from the U.S., which, by the way, is our number one asset in this country, right? We are the most innovative uh, deepest thinkers in the world, I like to think we are, uh, and our IP is the most valuable thing that we have. And if they steal $300 billion of that a year and they earn a return on it, then what's 50 to $100 billion in a trade deficit? It really, any president in the world, any former U.S. president can get the Chinese to buy more soybeans and more crude oil from the U.S. That's the biggest win the Chinese could, could <laughs> notch here. Uh, if we if we want to go deeper and say let's talk about IP theft, let's talk about industrial policy that 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 basically uh, subverts the the WTO policies uh, where they give free electricity and free land to national champions and therefore they can underprice uh, anything in U.S. industry because things are free uh, and they can put our industries out of business like they did in aluminum, like they almost did in steel right. before we push back. Those battles are much larger battles for U.S. jobs than people realize. So, Kyle, how optimistic are you that the U.S. does the right thing here and essentially listens to your advice and, and other people's to really make the right kind of ne- deal, not just a deal? You know, that that's really the, the point in which uh, the, the reason we wrote this piece uh, was my fear is that market volatility um, – pushes those in charge to say, well, you know what? We need to score a win. We need markets up because right. we really like to get elected in 2020 when, look, whether or not you support President Trump, um, he's the first president in the last 35 years to confront China. Right. Uh, they yeah. all said they would and no one has. Uh, and so he's the first one to go after them. And his team from his National Security Council to his trade rep to his special... Uh, 
at the DOD, the people in the intelligence community, all those people that are working on China, believe it or not, they're aligned. They all get it. They all understand what's going on and the, diff- and the, and the depth of what's going on. I think President Trump has got to let them um, get to the point where they want to uh, negotiate a, a more comprehensive transaction. You know, if you read the art of the deal, you read the reread the first chapter. Um, he, President Trump wakes up every day and he takes every day, um, uh, I guess, at face value and decides to make decisions how he feels that day. And truthfully, that can't be the way you negotiate a very long-term agreement with a country like China. And that's our hope is that it doesn't go that way. Well, and it's really interesting that you say that because I think a fair amount of people, doesn't matter what their political leanings are, have said they have agreed that it's time that we renegotiate our trade agreements with China. They just not necessarily agreed with the kind of methodology or method uh, or, or the approach, if you will. But having said that, going back to Jason, do you think President Trump, knowing how he has acted on many other issues, We'll listen to his team in this one. Just got about 40 seconds here. Yeah, I think, uh, I think he's really given the, uh, the ball to Lighthizer in these yeah. negotiations. And Lighthizer is a, is a brilliant uh, trade lawyer. He understands uh, the methods that the Chinese use, how they play the long game, and where we need to be. I think uh, my, my full confidence is in Lighthizer uh, to, the, to the extent that he gets trumped. Uh, by someone else uh, or by President Trump himself. That's that's what I worry about. 15 seconds left. Got to be quick. What's the risk if we don't get this right? Uh, I mean, the risk is uh, the hollowing, the, the further hollowing out of American indus- uh, industry and also tech. I mean, mm-hmm. basically we'll end up being, uh, you know, servants to China in the next 20 years if we don't stop their theft and, and reckless industrial policy. Kyle Bass, thank you so much. Founder and chief investment officer at Heyman Capital Management, Bloomberg 960 Studio in San Francisco. That's where we found him. And you can find his Bloomberg opinion piece. Just go to Bloomberg.com. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly on Bloomberg Radio. Let's move to that uh, very well-read story because a lot, a lot, a lot of bucks going to colleges and universities. Alma mater, be true to your school, Carol. Be true to your school. It's among our most read stories today. Um, So let's get into it. Janet Lauren, she is our endowments reporter at Bloomberg News in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio in New York. So what's going on? So college and uh, fundraising often mirrors the stock market. So if you have a pretty good year, and in this period, uh, the stock market uh, was up 14%, uh, it's not a huge surprise that donors are, are more charitable when their portfolios are doing quite well. Right. And this was before the December sell-off. Yes. This was <laughs> the year that ended June 2018. It's also, we've got to take into account a new tax strategy, right? That is correct. Or and overhaul. The, the tax strategy, um, as you know, uh, was passed in December 2017, about midway during the school year. So people weren't, we weren't really sure what was going to happen. However, um, people perhaps may have been very, very generous before December 31st, 2017, because they wanted to get their tax deductions, because it wasn't clear how itemizing was going to have an impact. So, for example, we did a story about, uh, you remember the uh, seat licenses in in football stadiums? Yes. Some schools were offering to take 10 years of seat licenses. And, you know, if you took them up on it, you you made a pretty big check that, that time. Um, all right. So as we look at the the league table, as it were, who raised uh, the most money, some 
some of the usual suspects, Harvard number one, Stanford number two, Columbia number three, but then UCLA, UCSF, University of Washington a little further down uh, there uh, in the top 10. Interesting to see public universities raising that much money. What's going on there? Well, uh, UCSF has raised a lot of money over time. Remember, they're a medical school only. So if you are a big donor and you're interested in health causes uh, and you also live in California, that's going to be a pretty big target. And they've had some pretty generous donations over there as well. And and UCLA, obviously a massive base. They're there in California and it's obviously a well-known school, right? Anything, Anything more to that one? Um, no, they've UCLA, I believe, has has been up there, um, you know, for for at least many years of the of the last decade or so. Um, the, the the change upon the top two, they've vacillated over time. Uh, Stanford has usually been number one, and Harvard did a record number last year, um, and Harvard has reclaimed that number, and I I believe one point four. Uh, billion might be their largest record ever. I love too that it was the nine nine straight years of records, right? That uh, by these universities raising money. Yes, pretty impressive. Yes, Janet Lauren, good stuff. Thank you as always. Thank you. Endowments reporter at Bloomberg News and our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Story. You can read Janet's story. Just check her out on Twitter at Janet Lauren or go to Bloomberg dot com. I'm driving in my car. I turn on the radio. How about you let me drive? Oh, no. No, no, no. Who's gonna drive you home? Honey, please. I'll do the driving. Drive home. Excuse me. I want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That funky music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. It is time for the drive to the close. This says we've got uh, equities kind of bouncing off their lows of the session. A little bit of a mixed market. Little changed in those equity averages. Let's get a perspective today from Oliver Portia back with us, Chief Market Strategist at Bruderman Asset Management. And he joins us uh, on the phone today uh, from Hollywood, Florida. And he's got about uh, $1.5 billion in assets under management. Hey, Oliver, nice to have you here, at least uh, via the telephone. Uh, tell me yes, a little bit- thanks for having me. Yeah, tell me a little bit about you know the last couple of months for you in terms of watching the trading uh, activity. What kind of changes have you done in terms of portfolio allocation, and where do you think things are headed from here? So, um, you know, I, I guess the first part of the answer is in December, we saw markets price in almost a crisis-like environment uh, to the point where things got to a very oversold uh, environment. You know, when, when the markets hit their low on December 24th, it was clear that uh, the only way those prices were justified is if the U.S. was going to enter a steep recession and essentially all hell was about to break loose. And to us, that was never a likely probability. Um, So we deployed some of the cash. We took on some additional risks, and so far that has paid off, although I will cachet that answer by admitting that we're still relatively conservative and hold about 5% cash, so technically still an overweight in cash position. Uh, in terms of what we see going forward, to us, it's, a, it's two stories. It's the trade story that you referenced, but it's also very much an earnings story. Are we going to enter an earnings recession in the United States? And half the strategists out there think that that's very, very likely, and the other half think that's almost impossible. 
Uh, but one thing is certain, we're going to see a significant slowdown in earnings growth. We saw about 23 24% earnings growth in the third quarter, about 13% in the fourth quarter. We're now expecting a 2% decline year over year in the first quarter and probably flat to slightly negative in the second quarter. And that's what markets are reflecting and why you're not seeing a whole lot of movement uh, up or down right now. So given that outlook, Oliver, which seems pretty cautious across the board, how do you weight a portfolio at this point? Are you looking at U.S.? Are you looking overseas? We've heard an an interesting emerging market story uh, start to come through. How do you synthesize it all? Yeah, so for a moderate growth portfolio, we continue to favor large-cap U.S. stocks. Uh, We've gone into a little bit of a sector rotation, picking up some of the undervalued, underperforming stocks from 2018. Uh, But clearly, that is still the place to be. I think it's also very interesting and things for investors to keep in mind. You're now getting real return, meaning a net of uh, inflation positive return on cash and short-term bonds. Right. And so we are slowly but surely increasing our allocation to both because we think that if you take a look at what return expectations over the next five years are, um, you know, bonds are competitive once again. And so those, that's an asset class that most investors ignored over the last decade because there wasn't much there. And why not, right, at this point, Oliver, that if you're worried about or not or are uncertain about what kind of comes next from here – why not take that trade, the fixed income trade, right, when it's compatible and competitive yeah. with uh, and the equity in, side of things? Yeah, absolutely. And keep in mind, here's what's really interesting. You can buy the two-year treasury and get virtually 98% of the yield that you would get on the 10-year treasury, right? Wow. So the, yields have, yeah. the yield curve has flattened so much right, right. that you can stay relatively short-term and relatively you know, risk-free in your treasury exposure and do very well. All right. So, Oliver, you are joining us uh, from the 2019 Inside ETF conference down there uh, in Florida. What are you hearing? You know, there's I know there's always like what you hear from the stage and the panels, but like what are people talking about in the coffee breaks? That's what I want. to. Well, I think what sticks out to me the most um, going into a perfect segue uh, is the amount of fixed income ETF product that is being launched or has been launched or is being contemplated. You know, up until uh, recently, so if, if you were at the conference last year, all you heard about was factor investing and, you know, directional exposure and smart beta, which are still very much part of the landscape, but you almost had no one talking about fixed income. Um, now I would say that half the conversations are about fixed income. Uh, both domestic and international. And so I think that's a that's a reflection of the environment and the uncertainty that both investors but also product sponsors uh, are seeing. So are people looking in front of them or are they looking behind in terms of what has happened? Well, uh, I do think they're looking ahead. I mean, there's a few things that, you know, are generally accepted as holding true. We're going to continue. We're going to see an increasingly dovish uh, I mean, uh, uh, hawkish, um, dovish uh, Federal Reserve that's unlikely to move much. You may get one more rate hike in the summer, but that's about it. You're not going to see four hikes like you did last year. Um, you're seeing a global growth slowdown, and you're seeing continued geopolitical uncertainty, both domestically here out of the Trump White House, but also with Brexit and China and India and everything else that's happening in the world. So 
when you look at that environment, you say, geez, I don't know what holds, what's going to happen over the next three, six, or 12 months. And let's not forget, every day that goes by, we're closer to the next recession. That's just part of the natural cycle. And most strategists and analysts, and we fall in that camp, think that end of 19, uh, uh, 2019, early 2020 is probably when we're going to be looking at a recession. I have so to, you want to play it a little uh, cautiously. I have to say what's kind of interesting, and I was kind of smiling at my co-host Jason Kelly here because I thought, I feel like, and forgive me, but I do feel like everyone's kind of saying a very similar thing at this point. You know, the earnings estimates are coming down. We have to be a little cautious. But you know what? Jobs reports and consumer sentiment is still pretty strong. Do we really have a good, like, clear visibility about kind of where we are in this cycle? Or, you know, are you getting ready to call a recession anytime soon? Um, well, that's part of the problem. You know, I mean, one of the side effects of the government shutdown is that an enormous amount of economic data has been delayed. So we don't have any clear clarity. We're now starting to get back onto pace. But that was a side effect, and that got everybody uh, sideways. The other part is, uh, regardless of what your political affiliation, whether you love or hate Trump, you know, one thing is certain. President Trump is unconventional and unpredictable. So it's impossible to say this is what the political you know, message is going to be. Is there going to be another shutdown as of Friday or not? What's happening with trade? Are we going right. to make progress? These are all big questions that no one has an answer to. Yeah. So, yeah, everything is murky. Right. We thought that we were going to maybe wrap this up with the last government shutdown, yet here we are, alas, again. Oliver, thank you so much. Oliver Portia, he's Chief Market Strategist at Bruderman Asset Management, uh, joining us from the Inside ETF Conference in Hollywood, Florida. He's got about $1.5 billion in assets under management. I thought it was interesting. Like, it, Right. You're going to open up new funds kind of based on where – the outlook is going and where people are looking to place their money, right? Right. And I do think this whole idea of, like, people are looking for simplicity. We're all looking for simplicity in our lives these days. Yes. It's an increasingly complex world. Thanks for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show every weekday at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio.